this being the first Sunday of the month, we normally observe the Lord's table, but due to the inclement conditions outside and numbers of people not able to be here, we're going to plan to uh, remember and uh, celebrate the Lord's table next Sunday then. And uh, so plan on that. And as always, if you're following online, then you can certainly join us by having your elements prepared prepared there. The uh, scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 4. We've been spending some time in the midweek Bible study uh, videos going through this chapter. And uh, as we're going to be looking at in our present sermon series on 1 Corinthians, that first uh, chapter of uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he's admonishing them for schism, for division and quarrels within, within their church. Then Ephesians 4 is, is a, another central passage on the unity of the Spirit among Christ's people. And so here we have it in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There is the the word of God and a, a great clear statement on the nature of the church and our, and our calling and how we as Christians are to live in light of that, of that calling. Well, 
let's ask the Lord's blessing then on the, on the ministry of his word. Father, we come once again to your word, and here we are in this letter that you inspired and directed the Apostle Paul to write to this church at Corinth. We pray, Father, that we would uh, have eyes to see and ears to hear your word, that your spirit would teach us, illumine our minds, show us our sin where we need to see sin and, and grant us repentance from it. We pray that you would in, encourage us and, and teach us more about what it means to know you, what your church, the body of Christ, really is and who your people are how we are to live, and we ask all of these things in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> First Corinthians, then, in chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at, specifically, verses 10 through 17. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 and uh, you can follow along in your Bible, or the verses are printed out for you in your handout. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of, of its power." Well, here then in this text is a very common evil that is found easily, sadly, in so many churches at, at one time or another, in so many local churches. Here, Paul is writing to people that he had spent 18 months with. I mean, that, that is quite an unusual amount of time. The Apostle Paul was in residence there at Corinth with them, preaching the gospel, leading them to Christ, and, and teaching them, establishing them soundly in the faith. And then here, probably not all that long afterwards, after he had left, he receives a report of this state of affairs in that church. There was division. There was quarreling. There was a party spirit. And we saw last time that at the root of all of this is pride. Um, this entire letter of 1 Corinthians, as we go through it, 
and certainly even into 2 Corinthians, is largely written to expose this specific root sin, that is, this arrogant pridefulness that was so prevalent among the Christian believers there. It characterized the world that they lived in, and they were being worldly. They were being conformed to the world, and as Paul would put it, they were acting like mere men instead of the new creations in Christ that they, that they were. How so? Well, specifically here, as we just saw in verse 12, what I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So what was going on there? Apparently it was quite quite widespread um, in the church. Um, they were, as I said, conforming to the, the Greek philosophical wor- world around them that, that worshipped wisdom and identified with a particular school, a particular leader of that school. They carried that practice over um, into the church. And so, but what they were dividing over is they were selfishly dividing over and in respect to personalities, personalities. Kind of a chosen identification with their uh, chosen celebrity, you know. That should sound pretty familiar to us today. It wouldn't be hard to find examples of Christians of Christian do, Christians doing that. I am of this person, and I am of that person, and, and so on. And all these quarrels and infighting then get started amongst these prideful people. You know, some of them must have been saying, well, I follow Paul. I am of his school. He's the preacher that I, that I follow. You know, he, he's the one that had that amazing experience on the road to Damascus. He's the one that came here personally and and taught us. So we prefer him. And then others would come along and say, well, you know, he's okay, but he's not that impressive. Paul's not that impressive in his personal appearance or in his oratory. These Greek philosophers were big on oratory and rhetoric and so on. So this group here pointed to Apollos. We're told in Scripture that Apollos was an eloquent uh, preacher. And so they, they said, you know, now there's the guy. There's the man who can, can preach. He's, he's the one for us. And still others were following Cephas or, or Peter. He's the rock. Jesus told him he's, he's the rock. He was personally with Jesus. We identify then with, with him. And you see each one setting themselves up higher and above the others. Then you have this other curious group, that last group. Well, we follow, we follow Christ. Now, initially, that might sound commendable, but it's not. In this list, is, this is a critical list. Paul is rebuking all four of these schools. He doesn't come along then and, and say, now, I know there are those of you who are saying, you follow Christ. Well, you guys are doing really... He doesn't say that. He, he rebukes them all. So we can conclude that these are the Christ-only followers. And you can find those kind of people among professing Christians then um, even, even today. We are the Jesus-only people, 
right? I think there was some kind of a movement like that at one time. I think to some extent this would <clears throat> also perhaps explain some of the, uh, you know, well, I've got a red letter edition of the Bible, a red letter. You know, who, who thought that up? Hey, I think, I think we should make the words of Jesus red <laughs> in this print. <clears throat> the whole book is the words of Jesus. It, it's the word of God, you see. And so um, at, at any rate, you so you, you have the same kind of thing to do. It's this terrible, terrible sin of pride and self that was causing this division, and already that early on in this one church, then there was movements that would have, if you just let it go, they're going to divide. And well, we're going down the road here to Stephanus's house, and we're going to start our own church. And then you'd have this church over here, and you have the church over here, and that largely describes the history then of the Christian of the Christian church, doesn't it? So this is this is the work of the devil that's what this is this kind of prideful division and and the devil loves this tactic because it neutralizes the effectiveness of our outreach to the lost world look at john chapter 17 jesus high priestly prayer i do not ask for these only <clears throat> but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Look at this now. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. This unity, this oneness that the Holy Spirit produces in the body of Christ is this most powerful witness to the world. And it's the Lord's intent that, that through our witness to the world then, the lost might believe. Um, <clears throat> and so the preservation of this unity, as we've just read in Ephesians chapter 4, this unity that the Holy Spirit produces requires not pride, but humility and love and forbearing then with, with one another. Listen to it again here, Ephesians. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, what is a worthy Christian life that is consistent with this great calling, this salvation that we've been called into? It's this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. If there's no humility, where pride and arrogance come in, unity in the body of Christ is inhibited and, and destroyed. And so this, this terrible pride had infected the Corinthians, as they lived like mere men, and it threatens us today at all times. There was division there in that church instead of unity, and Christ's witness to the world is always greatly harmed when that happens. You've, I mean, you've heard it, right, yourself. <clears throat> People, the lost, you 
try to broach the topic with them about the gospel, about Christ. And, you know, their thinking is, they're outspoken. Well, why should we listen to you? How come? You know, you Christians can't even agree among yourselves. Look at all the different uh, denominations and, and groups and churches and so on, and they're arguing and, with one another and separating with one another. You know, so you see this then, <clears throat> where this pride and selfishness infects the church and results in division and splitting and sinful separation and so on. Our witness for Christ is so often neutralized then. So it's little wonder that Satan loves this tactic and so much of his energy is poured into promoting this pride in us because he knows it will result in division. And schism is another word for that. You know, schisms, uh, it's from that Greek word, schismata. That's the Greek word for it, schismata, you see. So this is a terrible, um, it is a terrible sin. It is something, Satan's favorite ploy, his favorite ploy is to get us to get Christians to start being prideful and boasting about themselves and inevitably that will lead to division then you see in the church and so we have to all be on guard against it this can slide in and you know pride is so subtle it's so subtle it start it can start off small but given time and given its lead, it inevitably will grow and grow and grow, you see. So before, though, we, we consider this subject of sinful schism, sinful division further, we want to do explain kind of a caveat here, all right? So there's no misunderstanding. Sometimes Christians must separate all right sometimes we must separate and to fail to do so is sin in in and of in and of itself um, <clears throat> when is separation necessary and when is it wrong that's what we want to consider listen again to Jesus uh, words here in his high priestly prayer John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That, that's us, okay? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are. <clears throat> now, those words are very, very commonly twisted and misapplied by, well, you see this happening among uh, what we call liberal Christians who really are not, Christ are not Christians at all, but they love to cite this passage. It's very frequent. I, I think I've told you before about how uh, a liberal Lutheran pastor 
quoted this verse as a kind of a rebuke to me one time when years ago when we were in our, our first church, and, and he was upset because I, I refused to participate with him in a joint ministry, preaching ministry, that he wanted to put on in the summertime when there were a lot of tourists there and, and so forth. And uh, so he told me that I, you know, by not participating in this with me and with this other church in town, <coughs> you're disobeying Jesus' words. You're denying J Jesus praying that we all would be, would be one, you see. Well, the problem with this situation was that this fellow was a false Christian. How do I know he's a false Christian? Because he denied, when I pinned him down, he denied that the Bible was the inerrant word of God. He denied it. And if I'd have gone further in examining him, right, and pinning him down, I would have found out that as a result of him denying the inerrancy of, of the word of God, he embraced all kinds of other false doctrines then um, as well. But Jesus in his high priestly prayer didn't mean that we are to create this unity. What we're told is the Spirit of God creates the unity when we're saved, when we're regenerated, we're, we're made new creations and we're joined together in, in, the, body, in the body of Christ it is the Lord that creates the unity. We are to eagerly preserve it then, you see. And in fact, if you join with a false Christian, pseudo-Christian and so on, uh, you, you're actually not earnestly contending for, for then the, the real unity. The unity of the Spirit, we know... It does not mean that we join with everyone. Jesus rebuked, if you read the seven letters to the churches of Asia in Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, you'll find out there that Jesus rebuked several of those churches for not putting certain false teachers out from among their midst, separate from them. And then... Uh, uh, he also commended other churches for having put those false teachers out. You know, I, you, you guys hate the Nicolaitans, and that's good. So do I, that kind of a thing. But this unity of the Spirit that Jesus was praying for there in John 17, that they may be one even as we, Father, Son, and Spirit are one, is a unity produced by by the Holy Spirit among genuine Christians, it is not a unity that's produced by everybody that professes to be a Christian getting together. Let's play down doctrine, you know, that kind of divide. Let's play that down, and we're just going to do this whatever program then and so on together. That's a false unity, and that's not the unity that the Lord Jesus was praying for. That's not what he was talking about. The unity of the spirit is a spiritual, living, organic unity among believers who are in then the body of Christ. Just as, and Jesus said, he said, this unity that I'm praying for them is like the unity, Father, that you and I in the spirit have, you see. 
That's, that's the unity that is, that is true unity. And it exists wherever real Christians are. And where, the, therefore, the fundamental doctrines of the faith are believed and, and preached. Lloyd-Jones has two great sermons on this subject that you can listen to. Um, I put the little reference in there in your handout, mlj-trust, uh, and it, then it would be .com. But don't put the hyphen in there. The hyphen shouldn't be in there. But if you go to that site, mljtrust.com, you can find all of his sermons there on audio. Now, he's got a series there on spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, verses 10 to 13, a whole series of sermons. It's in that series where you'll find those two sermons on schism. That's, in fact, that's the titles of the sermon, Schism 1, Schism 2. And the reason I'm pointing that out to you is because if you have his printed eight-volume set on uh, uh, Ephesians, his sermons on Ephesians, those two ser- I don't know why, but those two sermons aren't in the printed volume. So you have to, you, but you can go online and, lis- and listen to those. And, and uh, he, he says, as usual, he has some, Really great um, insights. But in there, he says that we must separate from two things. And to fail to separate from them is sin. And those two things, he says, are heresy and apostasy. Heresy and apostasy. They're closely related. Heresy is simply the active teaching of a false gospel. Of, of false doctrine, all right? It is a denial of the fundamentals of the Christian faith, such as liberalism, denying anything in the Bible that's supernatural, miracles, resurrection, and so forth. Oh, we deny that. That's heresy, all right? That's heresy. Apostasy is similar, but it is, uh, it's, can be even more deceptive than heresy because by definition... To apostasy means to fall away. So these are people who, who appear to be sound in their doctrine, sound in their faith at one time, but over time they've drifted from it. Apo means from, they've, or away. They've drifted away, away from it then, you see. Once it appeared they were the genuine deal. But over time, they reveal themselves not to be. And so these are things that we are commanded to separate from, heresy and apostasy. The Roman Catholics, as uh, Lloyd-Jones points out, the Roman Catholics are always quick to accuse us Protestants of being the schismatics. You know, we're the ones, you guys... We are here. We were this. We had this great unity in Christ's church. Along came these reformers like Martin Luther, and uh, everything was divided. You guys withdrew. You are guilty of sinful division. You are guilty of of of, of schism. You see, but clearly, clearly, 
It wasn't the reformers who were moving away from the faith and producing this separation. It was Rome. It's, it's, the, one, it's the one who's preaching the false gospel, the one who is the apostate that is producing the division, sinful division. Uh, they're the ones that are sinful, and it is right to withdraw from them or put them out then um, of the church. So, for example, we are not to join with people who claim to be Christians. You know, and this is what, this is the whole thing of this whole, what's called the ecumenical movement. Ecumenical, you know, one house, we're going to be, we're going to be one. Let's just all get together. You see it here in our community in the form of uh, we're going to have this ministerial association and all of you, anybody that claims to be a Christian, you know, you just come right, right on down. And uh, we, we don't talk about doctrine and things like that. If you bring those kind of things up, you know, then you're just being divisive. That's their attitude. But what in the ecumenism says is, uh, uh, let's just eh, downplay doctrine and those, those kinds of things. And uh, the main thing is that we're together. And so we're we're united, you see. That's, that's what this ecumenism is. But we are not to join with people who claim to be Christians and, for instance, who deny the historicity of the early chapters of Genesis. All right? So if they deny the reality of the fall or someone denies the reality of, of, of the flood and God's judgment in the world and so forth. But they, you know, that, that stuff's all myth. It, that didn't happen. And that's just a myth designed to get us thinking. And, and it's up to us to determine what it, what it means and so on. No, we won't work with those kind of people. We will not join hands with them. They're not Christians. We will not join hands with people who deny the substitutionary atonement doctrine of the cross you know well you know the cross it was really just um jesus who was just a man um he uh he was giving us a moral example of sacrifice for us to follow that kind of a thing if people people like that are denying the vicarious atonement of christ on the cross and we will have nothing to do with them. We, we won't cooperate with anyone like that. Um, people who believe that abortion, the murder of babies, is a right and good thing. You can't be a Christian. Now, there's lots of people who will say they're Christians, right? But you can't be a Christian and be a murderer. <laughs> you, you can't do it. Human life is, is sacred, and, and you can't do it. And so we would never participate with any so-called church that does that. We won't cooperate with uh, a so-called Christian group that teaches a one-world globalism that we are supposed to participate in. That's what we're after. That's what it's about. You know, we're going to have a one-world globalism. We're going to uh, emphasize these social programs and all of these kinds of things, that's what we should be striving for. One world globalism. You know what that is? That's a kingdom of the Antichrist. We're not to help that to come. It'll arrive in God's due time, but 
we won't be part of that. So those things and more are an outright denial of God's word. And we maintain that anyone who embraces and promotes them is a counterfeit Christian and we won't participate with them. So that's it. Separate from heresy and from apostasy. It's commanded by God and to refuse to do so is, is sin. Second John 1, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So, for instance, I, I won't join in the local ministerial association. Why? Because there's counterfeit believers there. They're, they're fake Christians, and they deny the fundamentals of the word of God. And I, if I were to join in with them, I would be participating in their wicked deeds. We're not, to, we're not to do that. Now, of course, you know that just as Rome does, if you won't participate, you will be branded as being divisive, as being judgmental, and all of those, all of those kinds of things, you see. All right, then. <clears throat> but what about this matter of sinful schism that had infected the church at Corinth? How does that work? And how are we to identify it and, and avoid it? What, what is it? Sinful schism, sinful division or separation occurs when between genuine believers, between genuine believers, there is separation, there is division when there's no valid biblical grounds for that separation, right? There's not a biblical ground to do it. This kind of sinful separation is rooted in a prideful arrogance that promotes oneself, one's own position. I am right. You are not. I will not work with you. This, this kind of a thing. And it especially often um, concerns what we would call matters indifferent. These aren't matters of the gospel, the basics of the gospel, but this uh, we're talking about here is matters indifferent, and I'll give you some example of these things, of Christians dividing over issues that are really indifferent. That is, they're not, they don't, they're not what was called salvific in nature. They're not things that if you deny this, you're denying the gospel, all right? They're secondary or tertiary issues. And the history of the church, sadly, is filled with these things. Now, I put a note in here, but I may as well cite it at this time. We need to be careful when we're using the word church that we don't use it. We need to use it with precision, all right? So when I say, for instance now, church history, the history of the church is filled with sad accounts of sinful division, all right? The history of the church is filled with sad, sad accounts of sinful division. Well, we have to ask that, but what church are we talking about here? Well, when we're talking about the history of the church, generally we're talking about 
the visible church. That, that, that which claims to be a Christian church, but which may not be. It can, consists of people who are, not, who are not Christians. They claim to be Christians and so forth. Incidentally, in that MLJ Trust site, you will find some old videos there that are really interesting, worth watching. One is just of uh, Lloyd-Jones and his wife and kids and grandkids in the early days and <clears throat> their life. And so they're like home movies. But also, there's another one where he's being interviewed. Lloyd-Jones is being interviewed by a, a last guy named Davies something. <clears throat> and the guy is obviously not an evangelical. He's not a conservative Christian. He would profess to be a Christian, but it's interesting because he's pushing uh, ecumenism. Well, aren't you, you know, aren't you, uh, Pastor, I guess you call him Reverend Jones, aren't you being too narrow here uh, and so forth in your church? And aren't you separating here from other Christian, isn't there a point where everybody needs to be one and so forth? And one of the things you'll hear Lloyd-Jones say to the man is he says, ah, oh, but you don't understand the remnant, right? The true church, that's what he's talking about here. And so anyway, that one's worth watching. But so here, as I give examples of divisions, sometimes this has happened between genuine Christians. Sometimes it's happened in, a, in the counterfeit Christian church. Uh, and this first one here, I would say largely is an example of division in the uh, counterfeit Christian church. Here we go. The controversy over the correct date for Easter, if you can believe it or not, uh, began in early Christianity as early as the second century A.D., Discussion and disagreement over the best method of computing the date of Easter Sunday has been ongoing ever since and remains unresolved. Different Christian denominations continue to celebrate Easter on different dates, with Eastern and Western Christian churches being a notable example. Now, I think I recall from church history that um, so you've got your, you got your Eastern Orthodox Church and you got your Western, that is the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern and the Western. And one of the reasons they exist and they separated is this giant battle over what is the proper way to calculate the proper Sunday for Easter. All right, that's what they divided over. Now, uh, I don't know that you'd find many genuine Christians, for example, in either one of those, the Eastern or the Western. Uh, but nevertheless, there, there's an, an example of professing Christians dividing over something stupid, right? Something in, indifferent then. Here's some more examples here. Uh, Christians have divided sinfully over differing opinions regarding particular Bible translations. There are local churches and denominations that insist that the King James Bible is the only true Bible and uh, the rest, other, trans other modern translations are the result of liberals and 
and they've been corrupted by ungodly translators. And so, and so there are denominations even in churches that stand on this and they will separate. They will not cooperate with any other Christians, any other churches, if, if they are not using then the, the King James the King James Bible. You'll be, you'll be labeled as liberal. And, and what that means is you don't really believe the Bible. You don't have the, tr- the true Bible, you see. So I've run into those kind of people, and, and, and so have you. <clears throat> and then there's division, of course, over different views on eschatology. So there's some people, some professing Christians, the first thing out of their mouth will say, is your church premillennial? Is your church postmillennial? Is your church amillennial? Right? That's what they, they, that's the big thing. It isn't, do you know Christ? When did you come to know Christ? You know, how, what, what does your church believe about the fundamentals of the gospel? No, no, no. It's going to run right to this business on eschatology. And so there's been schism and division on this, you see. Um, I really appreciated in one of those two sermons by Lloyd-Jones that he put it this way. He said, he said, sinful schism is separation from one another over matters that cannot be proven with certainty. Now, we are confident. (laughs) We are confident, I think, that our approach to eschatology, amillennial, is the correct is the correct interpretation. That we believe that the Book of Revelation, for instance, is uh, exercises what we call recapitulation. It tells the same thing over and over again, but adding new detail then each time, and it doesn't. Uh, it's not laid out in in chronological order and, and so forth. You know, that, that's our take on it. We believe, for instance, then, that Satan is bound now in the church age from the time of the cross and up until the time Christ um, comes again. But if we are <clears throat> humble, we, we would, even though we hold to that position, we will acknowledge that we cannot prove it with certainty. <clears throat> what does it mean to prove it with certainty? It means to prove something to such a degree, such a level of certainty, that it's obvious to everybody that that's the right position. All right? And, and, or to deny it would be to obviously, absolutely deny then <clears throat> the word of God. So we can prove from Scripture that Christ is coming again, right? We can prove the doctrine of the second coming so that someone who disagrees with that doctrine is, is, not a, is not a Christian, you see. But when it comes to positions on eschatology, well, then, <clears throat> that's, that's different then, you see. You know, neither can the premillennialist or the postmillennialist prove with certainty that their position is correct. It is sin, therefore, <clears throat> to 
divide and gather into groups according to position on eschatology. It's sinful. Everyone in the body of Christ can uh, be welcome in the body of Christ in spite of those divisions. And those divisions exist as a result of pride, you see, pride. I think I've told you before about <clears throat> John MacArthur. I mean, there's a glaring public example of this business at a Ligonier conference that we attended. And right off the bat, he knew full well this was a reformed um, uh, conference. It's Ligonier. And, uh, and so here's all these reformed pastors. It was a pastor's conference. You know, R.C. Sproul was there, and, and all these reformed pastors are out there. And he opened up. His very first opening message was to start mocking the amillennial position. Well, I know other words that start with that little prefix, ah. You know, that a, it means nothing. That So I know another word, atheist, agnostic. And he's carrying on. That's arrogance. That is, that is pride. And that's sin, which, of course, he <clears throat> never never re repented of, you see. So, um, and I've mentioned before, what else cannot, what's it something else that can't be proved with certainty? Baptism. Baptism. My position is believer's baptism. All right? I've not ever been convinced that <clears throat> we should baptize infants. But, some of you believe that we should. That's a background you were raised in <clears throat> and taught in. And, and it's the, that's the position. Pedobaptism is the position of largely the Reformed Church. I mean, that, and, and, and so many of the uh, theologians and great preachers that we use, that we, you know, and refer to, that, that is their, that's their position. And then there's just, then there's the mode not just the person who is to be baptized, but how do you baptize? Immersion? Sprinkling? Right? What, what is it? So once more, this is another issue that Christians have wrongly <clears throat> separated, separated from, and, it, and it's, it's sin. There's no reason in the world that Christians, genuine Christians, holding different positions on the subject of baptism cannot fellowship together in the church, you see. Now, that's not to say that it's always sinful for Baptists to have a Baptist church and Presbyterians to have Presbyterian church and so on. <clears throat> but when people get arrogant and prideful and reject the other, that's schism and it is, it, it is sin. Because, again, that's a subject that no one can prove with certainty. If we could, it would have been proven with certainty already and the issue then, uh, then resolved, you see. <clears throat> we came to agreement on the nature of Christ, how he can be fully man and fully God. and That was hammered out long ago, but... <clears throat> Some these other issues, there are differing opinions then and conclusions on, you see. 
Um, do we have what was happening at Corinth happening among us today, identifying with a particular personality or famous church leader and rejecting people that don't? This was something I'm sure that Charles Spurgeon had to deal with. He became famous, not through self-promotion. He just became famous. He was greatly gifted. And, and no doubt there would be people on a Sunday coming to his church just because Charles Spurgeon, yeah, I go to Charles Spurgeon's church. That's, that, <clears throat> that's where I go. And they're looking down then up, up, upon, upon others. To such people, Paul would say, is Christ divided? Was Charles Spurgeon crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Charles Spurgeon then, you see? <clears throat> well, you have it today, and people, you have people come up to you and ask you, um, well, what do you think of John MacArthur? You, have, you, know, you can tell these questions are like a test. And you, you wanna, sometimes you want to respond with, uh, what's the right answer? Because you know if you give them the wrong answer, what? Well, already there's a spirit of, now that question could be asked and so forth in, in the right way. But a lot of times it's, do you agree with John MacArthur? And if they're carrying a John MacArthur study Bible, then you pretty well know, you know, where this, where this thing is headed. But that's not the issue. We're not to boast and, and focus around personalities. Paul is going to continue to hammer on this issue right on through 1 Corinthians. Here it is. He's still at it in chapter 3. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. <clears throat> I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We're to, we're to give all glory then to God. I think I, I mentioned this last week, but I thought about it some more this week. What do you suppose the Apostle Paul would say about naming churches after a particular apostle? That's it. That would be an interesting... Paul, you know, these uh, <clears throat> guys at Corinth, they decided to call their church St. Paul's Church. What do you think about that? Well, I think the answer would be pretty plain. I'm not sure when this thing got started, you know, St. Mark's. Uh, R.C. Sproul's, his church, it's called St. Andrew's. Um, I'm not sure that that would be a correct thing to do. I wouldn't separate from R.C. Sproul's church as a result, but nevertheless, why are we naming a church <clears throat> or a denomination even after uh, a man? Lutheran. There, you know, where that? Well, Martin Luther then, you see. <clears throat> Well, there's more issues. I mean, the list goes on. Wars have been fought in church history over the form of church government. 
Now, sometimes there could have been some valid reasons here where it was an example of Rome imposing a bishopry or prelates, priests and popes and so forth, that form of government onto a nation and so forth. But nevertheless, we have genuine Christians, real churches, some of whom are Presbyterian in their, what do we call this, church polity, the way that their, uh, their government, church government is, Presbyterian. Multiplicity of elders, <clears throat> all right? Episcopalian. Episcopalians have bishops and so on. Uh, and then you have congregational, which is common in Bible churches and Baptist churches and so on. Which is right? Well, every single one can be uh, given a case for support from Scripture. Every, every single one can. To divide over those things is sinful, uh, is sinful schism. <clears throat> this thing of pride, you know, that's been a huge issue in the history of our church, pride. And it sneaks up on us. It sneaks up on us. People can start out, and all the while, their pride is growing and growing and growing. But you, it's happening so subtly, they don't see it, and you don't see it, until it really begins then to evidence itself and become this. Listen to Paul here, Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of, of, the, na of the naive. <clears throat> this, this arrogance. And they notice what what Paul says here, um, they cause divisions and create obstacles. Uh, <clears throat> I had a letter recently from the other side of the world <laughs> where um, from a fellow that's in a church and there's a, there's a woman in that church been causing all kinds of problems, and he knew that I had had some sad experiences with her too, and so he wrote to me, but I like the way that he put it. He said, this lady, this lady manufactures conflicts. You know, that's, a, that's exactly what Paul is saying. They cause divisions and they create obstacles contrary to to, to sound doctrine. Now, what motivates a person to do that? Sin. Arrogant pride. They, they manufacture a situation and they demand that people agree with them or else, and then there's all kinds of, uh, there's all kinds of, of trouble, you see. Smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. And we're not to remain naive to those to those kinds of those kinds of things you know 
When a person is consumed by pride, they necessarily then in the church become divisive because in their pride, their position is right. And they'll pick up. They, they create these divisions. They, they'll pick up on, on small things that to a normal person wouldn't matter. Lloyd-Jones calls these kinds of pe people bigots, and he says bigotry is a psychological condition. You know, he's saying these people are crazy. They're not only evil, but it's, it's crazy, it's illogical, it's unreasonable. I'll give you another example. So right back there by the microwave. Now we're betraying to everybody online. We have a microwave in the sanctuary. But, but back, right back there, one Sunday uh, before church, long time ago, I was, uh, it was way back when we were doing this, our series on Romans that we spent a long time. We had just completed Romans chapter 16, but at, we'd started in the middle. And so I planned to go back to chapter 1. And just in passing, I was telling this guy, you know, uh, uh, that's what I'm, we're going to do now. We're going to go back to the beginning. And he started this body language, you know, all tensed up like, like no, no, no. That's, that's the evangelistic section. The church is about worship. We can't just be going to evangelism. I was making this issue. You see how Lloyd-Jones says it's a psychological condition? You're dealing with a, a nutcase, but they're, but they're evil. These, kind of, these kinds of people, ultimately, he was eventually put out of, of the church. But you think about this. Why? What? Well, they, they manufacture these kinds of divisions. This is a tactic of Satan. That's why it's happened so much here in our church. Those are the attacks of the enemy. Let's end with this. George Whitfield, most of you have heard of him. He was a great evangelist and preacher from England in the 1700s. He came here to America. He knew Benjamin Franklin and, and, and so on. And uh, he is a great example of preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace because for more than just this reason, but this is a chief one. He had worked with and known John and Charles Wesley for many, many years. And uh, he and John Wesley had had a falling out. John Wesley wouldn't let the issue drop. You know, he just kept hitting it and hitting it. It was over the doctrine of predestination. And uh, John Wesley, as subsequently uh, Methodists today, uh, are more Arminian in doctrine. And uh, so they have issues with the Calvinist predestination and, and so on. But these two Christians who had once been longtime friends and co-laborers in, in Christ, they were now estranged from one another. And it really ate on George Whitfield. He, he was really grieved by it. He always insisted that he was willing to work with anybody who was genuinely born again, a genuine Christian, and believed the, the fundamentals then of, of the faith. And now here is this sad, this sad separation from his longtime friend and brother uh, then in Christ. Well, he resolved. He resolved that he was going to effect reconciliation, and it took a long time. I mean, he had to write letters 
to and try and reason with John Wesley, but eventually their fellowship was restored. And, and John Wesley, in fact, preached at, at George Whitfield's um, funeral, funeral service. But John Wesley's brother, Charles, who wrote several of the hymns in our hymnal, which are very Calvinistic, by the way, but he, he summarized Whitfield's efforts to overcome that division with John Wesley and score a victory over the devil. And as always, Charles Wesley put it in poetic form. So here's what he said. When Satan strove the brethren to divide. See, it's Satan that's doing this. And turn their zeal to who's on my side, right? One moment, warmed with controversial fire, he felt the spark as suddenly expire. He felt revived. He's talking about Whitfield here now. He felt revived the pure ethereal flame, the love for all that bowed to Jesus' name. Nor evermore would for opinions fight with men whose life like his was in the right, his soul disdained to serve the selfish ends of zealots fierce against his bosom friends who urged him with his bosom friends to part might sooner tear the fibers from his heart. He now the wiles of the accuser knew. You know, it's like Whitfield, he woke up. This is, this is Satan here. And cast him down in his strongholds or through with each partition wall by men designed to put asunder those whom God had joined. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying Satan works to put us under, to divide the people of God that God has brought together by his spirit. And we must be wise to that tactic. Father, we thank you for these great words of yours written by the Apostle Paul, so pertinent today. We ask your forgiveness for the times when we become arrogant and, and we just want to know who's on our side, who's going to take our opinion and, and we become divisive. We ask your forgiveness for that. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to be earnest, contenders for the faith, and for the unity of the Spirit in your church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.